I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Hello and welcome to the Royal Horticultural Society's Gardening Podcast. I'm Guy Barter. Today we're talking gardens that glow in the dark and terrific terrariums as we visit the RHS Urban Garden Show in London. All you wanted to know about indoor gardening but were afraid to ask. But first, question time. One of the most popular benefits of becoming an RHS member is that members can ask our expert team advice on any gardening problem for free throughout the year. You can phone, email, write or talk to us in person at our shows. Your queries have been flooding in and a crack group of advisors got together to tackle some of your horticultural problems. I'm Lee and today I'm joined by my colleagues Becky and Jenny. Hello. Hi. John Field is in Acton and he's contacted us via email. Patio containers, does it matter what they're made of? I have glazed ones and terracotta ones about two foot high and a foot in diameter. I was hoping to grow lavender in one and rosemary in the other. Will it matter if they're in the sun or will the roots get too hot? Well, this is actually quite interesting because this year it's been great testing for plants in pots and we've had many people come to us with basically shriveled up plants that have been growing on patios where the plants have been cooked. I said, well, have they just dried out? And they said, oh, no, 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 I've kept them well watered. And then you find out that the plants are actually in black plastic pots, for example. So although the plants might be well watered, the sun is obviously uh, attracted to the black plastic. It's quite a thin medium as well. They're effectively poaching. They've poached their plants, which sounds really cruel. So terracotta pots would appear to be a better choice. What do you guys think? I think there's two different aspects here where, in theory, you can grow plants in anything. But I think when we have these extreme conditions, some of these finer aspects do make the difference. And while I agree with you about black plastic pots, because we know black will attract the heat, of course, quite quickly, a lot of our containers will be covered by the things that grow in them. And in itself, that will shade and cool the black pot underneath. So there might be a way that you can grow a few pretty more training things down the side and really not have to worry about that choice. So... I think trying to get things established, hopefully when it's cooler in early summer, getting some trailing things down the side, which kind of means it doesn't really matter what the pot looks like. I often think this when I think, oh, I'll buy a really nice terracotta pot and then I never see it again. 
And then trying to keep it as moist as possible will really help. I think in some cases you can consider liners on the inside as well. So it's often thought, for example, with lead containers that you could just put some insulating polystyrene tiles to try and just deflect the heat. Similarly, with terracotta pots that might lose moisture, lining them with plastic can help reduce that. The one thing I will say, though, is I noticed a lot of plants in early summer, so when it rocketed up in temperature in mid-June, very high light levels because long days at that time of year, we saw a lot of scorch. So flowers being bleached, leaves being bleached. So I'm wondering whether it was also very much about the intensity of light, as much as almost the temperatures at that time. It's something which I would say is more unique to the year, because often we get much more sort of cloudy patches, even if the temperatures are high. We do mention rosemary and lavender here, and of course these are Mediterranean plants. These are things that can stand the very high light levels, because they're often around the coasts of the Mediterranean, and they're very good at managing their water loss. So I think those are good choices to try in those more challenging containers anyway and should cope with the hot conditions. Penny D by email asks, my grapevine has gone mad over the summer and produced over 20 kilos of grapes. Do I need to do anything to help it recoup after this surge, like a little extra feeding? Any suggestions on what to do with the grapes? I haven't got the patience to make wine. Well, obviously treading the grapes is off, but what do we think? Well, in terms of helping the plant recoup after its great surge of growth, you wouldn't actually be doing anything this time of year. Actually, just let it rest. (laughs) Pick the grapes and just let it rest. You'll be pruning it once the leaves have dropped. And that's really all you need to do until the spring and then you'll be feeding it with a general purpose fertiliser such as Grow More or Vitex Q4. And that's the time that it will really make use of the fertiliser. So nothing to do at the moment. All the work is for you to do. What are we going to do with all those grapes? Oh, I think we should make some juice. So it's quite easy to make, although you do have to make sure you've not got a white T-shirt on, especially if there is a red grape, because trust me, having covered my kitchen, it will get everywhere. So you're picking the grapes off the bunch and then you're washing them in case they've got anything coating on them or anything else that's living on them. And then you're using a potato masher to mash them in your pot. And then that's breaking up the skins. And then you're boiling them on the pan and that's sterilising it. You can add a bit of sugar to taste if it's a little bit of a sour grape. And then once it's come to the boil, you're cooling it down and sieving it to get out the pips, if there's any pips, and to remove the skins. Then it's cooling it and storing it in the fridge. So it, it will keep for about, what, three to four days in the fridge in a jug or you could make some ice pops with it so you can have nice ice lollies made out of grape juice or you could make your own cocktails i found quite a lot of recipes for um grape juice cocktails online i have to say there's one that i quite liked called an absolute mobit and if, if anybody knows anything about their liquors they probably know which website i went on with the absolute so that one's made out of vodka tonic water grape juice and a slice of lime so that's quite a nice fresh refreshing one another one was called formula 44 and that's got raspberry vodka triple sec black raspberry liqueur and grape juice that one sounds a little bit dangerous but you know you've earned it you've squashed all those grapes you've actually used your produce so i think you should have it 
I think Becky's got the right idea, and I think it's time for a party. I take my inspiration from the Amalfi Coast, and at this time of year, they'll hang the bunches of grapes up in the street, and the neighbourhood will come out. For a few euros, you buy a glass, and then you go along, and they keep filling it up with wine, but they do give you the chance to tread the grapes as well, so it's a good excuse for a party. Rebecca Baxter from Sutton Coldfield has contacted us about sunflowers. I love sunflowers, she says. Could you suggest them with medium height and good slug resistance? Some ideas of companion planting for an east-facing border against a wooden fence. I want some sunny, colourful border flowers and hopefully with some scent. So there's quite a lot wanted there. We want some sunflowers with good resistance to slugs, some companion plants and some long-term colourful inter-autumn border plants. Right, who would like to start? I'll make a start. As far as the slug resistance is concerned, I don't think that there are any varieties that are more slug resistant than another variety. The way I did it this year to prevent slug problems was to grow them on in a nine centimetre pots first outdoors so no extra heat or anything and then you've got a reasonable size plant to put out and I think that really helps give things a head start and then I put them in containers and I chose ones that weren't too tall because obviously my container was about two three foot tall so a three foot sunflower is absolutely perfect in that situation. In terms of sunflowers which don't reach huge heights There's one called Elite Sun, which gets to 1.2 metres, that's four foot. If you want a smaller one, there's Suntastic, which only gets to a foot. But they usually have loads and loads of flowers and lots of side stems, so they can be really, really good value. To go alongside all these sunflowers, which you've successfully grown because you've planted them in little pots first. Becky, have you got some ideas? I have. So salvias are quite nice. It's quite nice. Obviously, you've got the yellow, so it's quite good to contrast it with a blue. And that always gives a quite nice thingy. And and then also, if you've got a quite a tall sunflower, you can combine it with a tall salvia like indigo spires. And and that's very nice, very pretty salvia. I mean, this year, Cosmos has gone a bit crazy. Everybody's swamped with ultimate tall cosmos but it is a really good doer and it's quite nice to have such a thick border with lots of different colors zinnias are another singy colored flower that again you can get oranges pinks also like a sunflower shape flower i haven't really had anything with scent have you got anything scented that you can think of struggling a little bit on trying to provide options for scent here because most of the daisy family as we're trying to talk about things like sunflowers are not greatly scented However, I'm wondering actually about including some perennials here. So things that are going to come up year and year and look very similar to sunflowers with the yellow petals around a central boss. For that, I would go for something like the Rebecca Goldsturm, which has golden rays and nice dark centre. Also, the perennial sunflower, so Lemon Queen, gets a little bit taller around kind of 1.5 meters or five foot has lemony yellow flowers will make a really robust clump in a border you can find links to more information about the topics the team discussed on the podcast page of our website rhs.org.uk forward slash podcast now not all gardeners have a garden 
Many, particularly large numbers of town and city dwellers, grow indoors or in containers, on balconies, window boxes or even on roofs or walls. The innovative approaches taken by urban gardeners and designers are truly inspirational. Our team went to the RHS Urban Garden Show to learn more. Hi, I'm Rob Stasevich, designer of the UV Garden at the Urban Show. The concept came to me when I was in Singapore on holiday at the start of the year. Wherever I go on holiday, I always have to go to the nearest botanic garden. And Singapore has this world-renowned botanic garden, which is just incredible. I did spend quite a few days there just walking around, looking around, taking in the atmosphere and the heat and humidity. My friends over in Singapore that I stay with, they organize party nights around the city. When I was there, we uh, had a UV party. And so the two ideas sort of merged and I thought, why not have a garden and incorporate some of these UV effects? My thought is that it's good to try something new, show the plants in a different light, quite literally, turn everyday horticulture sort of on its head, traditional things like benches and plants and urns just change it completely. So we're surrounded at the moment with all these sort of neon elements that are glowing all around us. I wanted to have as many exotic and lush leafy plants in here as possible. So I just looked at the time of year, what's available for gardens at this time of year, but also relying quite heavily on indoor plants. Things like alocasias and colocasias that are big and leafy that just give that far away feel. Apart from the leafy plants, I also managed to get hold of lots of orchids. The orchids look really good in these um, macrame hangers that are either side of the bench here, which are also turning things on their heads with macrame, they're neon, sprayed with neon paint, so the orchids are sort of growing out of them and looking sort of quite ethereal under the purple lights. Just white orchids, but they sort of have taken on all these different other colours. Gives a really cool effect. There's one plant which I think would be ideal for any home, and it's called Lagenella uncinata, also called peacock spike moss. By day, it's this little bluey-green, mossy, ferny plant. Under the spotlight there, it's a UV spotlight, which just picks out little sections that glow under the UV light. And it's really quite a magical thing. People have been looking at the display here thinking, all these big plants are glowing, but actually they're not. It's that one little plant, which is just sort of the star of the show as far as I'm concerned. Anyone could grow it on the smallest windowsill and have this amazing display by night under the UV spotlight. So my name is Emma and I run London Terrariums. So a terrarium is a, I guess, a self-contained ecosystem. So they are little bottle gardens which um, require minimal maintenance or care. They can sit happily on the side without you really doing too much to them. The idea of them is that the plants can photosynthesize inside just as they would do normally. But that heat and the oxygen that they create condensers on the inside of the glass trickling down keeping constant humidity and watering them but the glass protects the plants from any outside elements so any dust or any pollution 
It's just a real kind of steady environment for the plants to survive in. They were originally a Victorian invention brought about by a man called Nathaniel Bagshaw Ward. He was an entomologist, so he was really interested in obviously bugs and insects and things like that. And one day he found a little sphinx moth chrysalis and he popped it on in a bed of compost inside a little jam jar, sealed jam jar. And he just kind of was leaving it there, watching the evolution of this moth. But actually what he found was after a couple of weeks, a few blades of what he thought was grass started growing out of the compost. But it actually turned out to be a miniature fern. And this fern was thriving in this glass for many, many months. And this really kind of baffled him because he was also really interested in plants and had tried to kind of grow ferns and keep them alive, but without too much success. And here, without even trying, this fern was growing. And he basically figured out that the sealed glass containers were perfect for growing a lot of tropical plants as well as ferns. This is kind of the era of the Victorian plant hunters. So people were also traveling to, say, Australia to collect these new plant specimens and bringing them back to the UK and Europe, but kind of failing quite miserably. Their success rate was only about 2% when they first started doing it because it was just the wrong conditions on board these ships to bring the plants back. So Nathaniel Bagshaw Ward was really good friends with a guy called Robert Fortune, the director of the Chelsea Physic Garden at the time, and mentioned to him that he'd found that these plants were growing inside these sealed jars really happily and between them they developed something known as the Wardian case which I guess was the first ever terrarium. The Wardian cases were then kind of implemented on board these ships and basically meant that the success rate of moving plants around went up to something ridiculous like 80%. 80% of the plants brought over using these Wardian cases were not only surviving but really thriving as well. And that's when you started to see kind of, I guess, a lot more tropical plants in the UK and the evolution of like the Victorian palm houses and something called Teridomania started to kind of sweep the nation as well. So Teridomania is the botanical obsession of all things fern. <laughs> I guess if you think about like Victorian interiors, carpets, wallpaper, William Morris, that kind of thing, big sweeping fern motifs were everywhere. And I think collecting ferns was the only thing that young Victorian ladies were allowed to do unchaperoned. They would collect these ferns and then keep them in these Wardian cases in their homes and watch the ferns, basically. And then I think it died down a bit until the 70s when people started to kind of... The next houseplant boom came and people used to have the big carboy terrariums. So that's what I get a lot of people coming to workshops now and they're like, oh, I remember growing up with one of those. And we do plant a lot of the carboys. So the smaller ones we use, Ficus pamilla, um, a lot of Fetonia. Fetonia are kind of the main plant that we use just because they're really bright and beautifully coloured. And um, they're also called the nerve plant because of their bright veins on there. Also a lot of moss. We love moss. So, and the moss thrives really well in the terrarium. So we're constantly using a lot of moss in there. And then the larger carboys, you can use many different types of ferns. Calathea, Maranta work really well, the prayer plants as well, ivy. Any plant that kind of really will thrive in that high humidity works really well. Overcrowding is something that, especially in the workshops, we have to be like, oh, maybe that's enough now. You've kind of, I think, especially coming to workshops, people really just want to like use everything on the table. But I think part of the thing that I love about the workshops is that what people make isn't really kind of the end result. It's all about kind of watching it grow, taking it away and watching it grow. So for me, like the best part is when people are actually quite minimal and maybe put one or two plants in and then you've actually got the space in there to watch them grow. People living in London who are 
renting more than buying at the moment houses I think a terrarium is a great way of just kind of moving this little garden around with you and you've got the ability to kind of do the gardening bit and also for people who claim to be awful with houseplants and like forgetting to water them or if you go traveling a lot because they are so self-sustaining you can just let them do their own thing. Hi, I'm Michael Perry, also known as Mr. Plant Geek, and I'm here at the RHS Urban Garden Show to talk about weird and wacky plants. I've been interested in plants and gardening since I was just five or six years old. I had a career at Thompson Morgan, so 18 years with the very famous mail order company, but always with an interest in the more unusual side of things. So obviously petunias, but maybe ones with star-shaped spider flowers and that has really developed now into the weird and wacky plant show where i now talk about the largest flower on earth the oldest living plant you know a whole range of amazing plants that have really captured people's interest because people don't realize how fascinating the plant world is i mean we realize but the general public have no idea so there it's really fun to wow them at every opportunity we have so many cool plants in the process, probably too many because I want to show everything all the time. We have the miracle fruit, for example, which is a bush from West Africa that has a small berry that includes a molecule called miraculin, which can change the taste receptors on the tongue. So we've actually got some of those fruits to experiment with the audience where they're going to chew on these fruits and then because it changes the pH of foods, I'm then going to get them to suck on lemons and those lemons will taste of sweet sherbet. And this is such a fun plant to experiment with because it also changes the flavor of vinegar into a kind of sweet cider and it changes pickles to like candy. So it's really fun and it is the fun side of plants and I hate to be too serious and I don't want to bog people down with the technical side of things. I just want people to understand and appreciate plants and with the presentation we've got today, there's a lot of weird and wacky plants that people can see. There are a couple of lovely succulents to look out for at the show. You've obviously got a range of different cactus. Cactus are very trendy now. I love to recommend the Astrophytum because I see that as a spineless cactus because the spines are very, very small. It's called the Bishop's Cap Cactus as well. So it's almost showing people that cactus is not what you might imagine it to be. And that's what I like to do. And houseplants are so trendy right now. So you've got some lovely monkey mask, monstera oblique and adansonii, which have the holes in the leaves. So it's almost like a cheese plant, but with even more holes in. And even down to everyday plants that we know and love, such as spider plants, they still are really interesting. And especially to a beginner, because you've got the baby plants hanging down, which... I think a lot of horticulturists that have been in it for years and now take those things for granted and we see spider plants as so cheap and a throwaway plant but actually they're incredibly interesting with these baby plants that the general public is fascinated by it's just amazing there's still so much more we can do in terms of teaching people about plants and the fascinating things that they do let's have a think about some everyday plants that are actually weirder and wackier than you imagine I mean, there's one that is in our gardens most seasons that you may or may not realize has that weird and wacky look. And it's a plant called Anserinum, the snapdragon. We know that it has those lovely bunny flowers that you can kind of do that little puppetry with. But actually, when it sets seed, it opens up at the top with three little holes. And when you turn that upside down, it looks like a perfect skull. You know, it's just this innocent Anserinum. But looking at it from a different angle, you realize that this is becomes something quite scary so that is something you can grow at home easily outdoors in terms of house plants looking for seed sources online there's one plant that i really recommend people get out there and try and find 
is called the dancing plant and it's Codiara calyx motorius. used to be called Desmodium gyrans, so you may find it under that name. And that is a fantastic plant because it's one of very few plants which is capable of rapid movement on its own. And it moves its little leaflets in relation to the light. So it's maximizing the light that the plant receives. It also reacts to sound and vibration. And when I first came across this plant in a botanical garden in Japan, I was talking to my host and the plant was moving around. And so this plant actually will dance for you. So it's very easy to grow from seed, grow it to a couple of feet tall, maybe in a tray on the windowsill and experience that for yourself. So there's so many cool plants out there that we can grow and have that experience with. Of course, the very basics such as sensitive plant, mimosa, which we know and love, Venus flytraps, insect eating plants of all shapes and sizes. Hello, I'm Naomi Slade and I'm here in the RHS halls at the RHS Urban Garden Show to talk about my new book on dahlias. Dahlias are just a fantastic, glorious, glamorous plant, aren't they? Um, they fell from fashion in the middle of the 20th century, but round about the year 2000, they came back with a boom. Bishop of Landaff was the first variety that I ever personally noticed when I was um, exhibiting at Tatton Park Show. And the Welsh College had put together this show garden made from dark lobelia and there was Bishop of Llandaff because they were depicting a dragon's lair so lots of beautiful red smouldering colours and for me that's the point where it went from a background plant to a real spotlight plant and since when they've just got better and bigger and bolder and more fashionable. The thing about dahlias is they are highly promiscuous. They breed and they interbreed and they backbreed and they crossbreed. So they're highly, highly varied. There are over 60,000 named varieties globally. And you have these great big dinner plates and you have round pom-poms and collarettes and ball dahlias. And they have lots and lots of different forms. And depending on where in you, the world you are, depends on the exact classification. But the fact that they are so incredibly versatile in form and in size and in height indeed means that they are popular both in the garden and with florists. And I think that has got a lot to do with their renewed appeal. For a novice dahlia grower who wanted to plant something for flower arranging, for you looking in the garden, just for a little bit of casual snipping, I'd start off and go, well, firstly, what do you like? What shapes do you like? What are your tastes? Pick the colours you like. Don't worry about fashion. Dahlias transcend fashion these days. Um, there's a ginormous dinner plate dahlia called Café au lait, which is very popular with brides in bridal arrangements. It's terribly fashionable, but if what you like is a little dark red pom-pom dahlia because you like that little drumstick look, don't plant those. So certainly pick the plants that you like. And secondly you would be advised to think about how much space you've got. So the big dahlias can be absolutely humongous, six foot tall or more. But there are series which are quite small. The gallery series are up to about 24 inches high. So they do very well in containers. And I've grown quite a lot of dahlias in containers this year. And it's been very successful. Dahlias are generally considered tender, as in they will fall over and go mushy the moment the frost hits them. But actually, in their natural environment in Central America, they do get some degrees of frost there. But the reason that they don't die out completely is because the ground is very, very free-draining. And it's not, generally speaking, the cold that will kill dahlias so much as the wet. So with climate change or an enclosed, sheltered garden on good free-draining soil, it's increasingly successful to overwinter dahlias in the ground even in the UK. This is, however, not to be attempted if you've got cold, soggy, heavy clay, because they will just rot. So I lift my dahlias out of the cold, soggy, heavy clay, but I often leave them if they're growing in pots of free-draining compost and just move them somewhere sheltered. 
not overdoing the wet and the cold is key in daily survival. The RHS Urban Garden Show. If you missed out, fear not. There are plenty of other events coming up this winter. As before, you can find links to more information on these on our podcast page. Well, I'm afraid that's all we've got time for today. Next time, we're heading to RHS Garden Rosemore in Devon to explore the exciting new developments and displays, including the cool garden and the preparations for the beautiful winter glow illuminations. Until then, from me, Guy Barter, and all the podcast team, goodbye. I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilise the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced-rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine, and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.